Welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast, hosted by Elise Lonich Ryan, John Buckman, and me, Ryan McDermott. I'm a professor of English at the University of Pittsburgh and faculty director of the Beatrice Institute, an ecumenical learning and research community that supports advanced inquiry in the Christian intellectual and cultural traditions. Animated by intellectual friendship, inside and outside the academy, Beatrice Institute serves all who pursue the beautiful, the true, and the good. My guest today is Glenn Arbery, president of Wyoming Catholic College. Born in South Carolina, reared in Georgia, Arbery grew up as a Southerner and a Protestant. His reading of Flannery O'Connor as a freshman at the University of Georgia began his journey toward the Roman Catholic Church. A convert at 25, he entered the church at the University of Dallas, where he met his wife-to-be, Virginia Lombardo, and later took his Ph.D. in literature and politics. He is the author of Why Literature Matters, along with dozens of essays and hundreds of columns. He has edited collections on the genre of tragedy, the Southern critics, and the Confessions of St. Augustine. Recently, Glenn has been writing novels, a trilogy on small-town life in the New South and in the mid-20th century. Bearings and Distances, the first installment, was published by Wise Blood Books in 2015, and a second novel, Boundaries of Eden, will be out before the end of this year, also from Wise Blood. I spent a good part of this summer camping with my family in Lander, Wyoming. While there, we became acquainted with the vibrant community that is built up around Wyoming Catholic College. With COVID cases near zero at the time, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Glenn Arbery in person for this conversation. So, Glenn, why did Alan Tate never finish his biography of Robert E. Lee? That's a long story. The short answer is that he came to um, dislike Lee. He had grown up, as most of us in the South did, revering General Lee. But then the more he investigated the last years of the war, the more he thought that Lee had valued his own reputation over the good of the Confederacy. Tate thought that Jefferson Davis was a disaster as president of the Confederacy, and he thought that Lee should have had the gumption to see that and to step in and take over the Confederate government. All that sounds to me kind of far-fetched. Uh, you know, Lee was Lee. He was not a politician. But in any case, I think uh, Tate found himself backing away from, from the figure of Lee as, as one to admire because he didn't, he didn't have enough uh, capacity to put his own self-regard aside, something like that. He also got into the psychology of Lee in somewhat strange ways. I wrote an essay on this some years ago that uh, really let me delve into that a bit. So, you know, I think Tate started to psychoanalyze Lee in terms of his, his father's failure and abandonment of the family, Lee's relation to his mother. <laughs> it all gets kind of Freudian. So, yeah. so in that context, writing to John Beale Bishop, Tate wrote... Like most of us, you are both inside and outside the old tradition, that in a word, you are a modern and divided mind. To what extent does this describe the Southern writer today? That's a great question. It's harder for me to see it as clearly now, just because most Southern writers are more like everybody else, I suspect. When Tate was growing up, even when I was growing up in the 1950s, the South was still had a, a kind of strong identity. You know, it was 
preserving the remnants of the Confederacy and all that. I, mean, I grew up in an extraordinarily racist society, no question about it. And so did all the Southerners of the generation, you know, Faulkner and Tate and Caroline Gordon and Robert Penn Warren and so on. They were struggling against what they saw as the injustices of the Old South, but they were aware of their own prejudices and struggling within. You see this, I think, most clearly in Faulkner. Uh, Faulkner was working out things about contemporary race issues, for example, you know, as early as the early 30s, you know, the light in August and Absalom, Absalom, books like that. Um, contemporary Southerners, uh, frankly, I haven't read that much. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't feel like, you know, what when I talk about Southern literature, I'm really talking about a kind of Southern Renaissance from the 20s through the 50s and into the 60s with Percy and, and, and uh, Flannery O'Connor. But I just, you know, I haven't kept up sort of with Southern literature per se. Why do you think incest is such a prominent theme in Faulkner's work? Is that a way to deal with the legacy of the Confederacy? You know, it's also a prominent feature in my work, and there's something about the South that leads to that question. Why is it that uh, this sort of turning in on family seems to be such a prominent feature you know, in old Virginia, it was considered completely in keeping with proper societal norms to, to marry your first cousin. Mm-hmm. These days, that would just, just seem absurdly incestuous. But there's, there's also just something about the, the interned nature of, of a society, you know, like the Old South, I think that that tends toward that incestuous meditation. And I think with Faulkner, when Faulkner starts thinking about the unacknowledged children of, of um, you know, the, the white plantation owner and the, and the female slave, that, that question kind of comes to the fore. Uh, it could even be unig- unknown or unacknowledged incest. He has that happen uh, in... Well, it's not unacknowledged, but he has that happen in Go Down Moses, where uh, old Carruthers McCaslin buys one of the you know slave women from New Orleans who are sort of bred as concubines. I mean, it's, it's a horrible stuff. But then, so her name is Eunice. He has a child with Eunice, and then a child with Eunice's daughter with him. You know, so yeah, I think it's it's part of this. What what. Faulkner's really analyzing as the deep pathology of, of a certain kind of Southern thinking. So sociologically, what would be the antidote to a cultural incestuousness? Or maybe not just, an, maybe not antidote, but put it more mildly, what's, what is the sociological converse of, of incest? Another great question. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, traditionally it's you know, marrying outside the outside the particular family or clan, uh, openness to change, you know, openness to otherness. I think you see it. Maybe one way to think of this is is to think of Odysseus, you know, and his many travels, you know, seeing so many different things. So that when you get back to Ithaca, you know, you're you have a, a broad range of experiences to draw on, and you're not convinced that your own cultural way of doing things is the only one. I think that's, you know, traditionally the the way to do it. 
Whereas if you want to keep things the same, you know, there's a deep conservatism in, in incest, you could say. Though you can't characterize conservatism as incestuous. You know. mm-hmm. But there's a, you know, as we used to be told in, in school, hybrid figure, you know, comes from yeah. <laughs> crossing the strains. So, yes, everything of that seems to be the answer. The, your, the main character in Bearings and Distances is an English professor, and he has attained whatever amount of fame you can attain as an English professor <laughs> by... Uh, Working on there, right? <laughs> yeah, publishing a book called The Gameme. What are the real-life origins of The Gameme? How do, you, how do you mean that, right? Well, is, there a, is this a theory that... That somebody, that somebody like, like me came up with. Yes, right. And, and right. Uh, it, you know, what it's, it's drawing together the meme, right? right. Which right. is, which right. is a, a prominent yeah. theme now. And the gamete. Yeah, so these are some ideas I was toying with in the early 90s. You know, I was trying to think about, um, you know, cultural change. And figures like Aeneas, you know, come out of Troy with the past stripped away and the whole purpose of Aeneas seems to be to combine that past with the new you know, Latin people of Italy. So I, I was thinking of it in terms of what goes on you know, in, the, in the sexual process when each you know, man and woman each carry half of the, the genes you know, or chromosomes that are necessary for the new organism. So Richard Dawkins, who's famous for his atheism and his um, biological theories, came up with the idea of the meme, you know, way long time ago. And he meant it as a, a kind of cultural gene. The way it's used now is pretty far from what he originally intended. But yeah, to think of a, of a cultural gamete, you know, what that would look like was kind of the idea behind the gamete. And I, you know, I realized after a while, there's no way to you really support all this. And so I put it in the novel. And right. Had <laughs> Braxton Forrest, you know, become famous with it. So, yeah. yeah. It's a good David Lodge move. There, there you go. Yeah. yeah. So old tradition can mean many things. And with respect to the history of the Confederacy, one wants to be outside the tradition, even if certain aspects of agrarianism, which is, you know, mm-hmm. Tate, Alan Tate is the, the, one of the main proponents of agrarianism in the uh, mid-20th century. So some of these aspects remain attractive in the work of people like Wendell Berry or Joel Saladin. I don't know Joel Saladin's work. He, well, he's, a, he's an actual, I mean, I guess Wendell Berry was an actual farmer too, yeah. but, but he's, he's more famous for his farming and he's been the star of multiple foodie documentaries okay. about about the sort of new agrarianism. Do you have a, a take on what on what sustains the new agrarianism in the popular imagination and allows that to be so prominent, you know, that someone a writer like Michael Pollan can make his his name on it and uh, and yet it's it is able to insulate itself from the early intellectual tradition that attached itself to the Confederacy in some ways. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I mean, I think agrarianism per se is just perennially attractive. You know, there's a there's a kind of romantic strain that runs through it, I suppose, but it's, you know, the idea of living off the land of, of 
growing or raising your own food, you know, having a community of, of like-minded people, all those things are, are deeply attractive in a world that's gone so virtual and technological. So what the Southern agrarians were objecting to in, in 1930 was the incursion of what they saw as kind of modernity, if you want to put it simply, uh, the incursion of industrial modernity on a traditional agrarian society, which they took some pains to distinguish from, you know, the Confederacy and the, you know, the meaning of the Old South and so on. Some of that was disingenuous, surely, but a lot of it, I think, was was just, you know, uh, true. Andrew Lytle's essay uh, called The Hind Tit and the... And, um, I'll take my stand is very much about this. It's about um, what happens to the old farm life when when people start going into town to watch the movies and you know think that everything is elsewhere instead right. of instead of where they are. Meanwhile, Wyoming Catholic part of its unique training is that students are given the opportunity to work on an actual ranch and uh and yet the one of the main obstacles to the future of the small farm in the u.s is uh is that land is now owned mostly by these large conglomerates mega farms uh and so to actually have a a family farm is financially Possible for many people, unless unless you you know there are very few family farms that you can still inherit. And as you say, if all is elsewhere, the younger generation is not inheriting that. What do you see as the possibilities for someone you know, an undergrad who comes through Wyoming Catholic, falls in love with ranching, wants to raise cattle in a sustainable way? Where where does someone like that go? Well, our valedictorian a couple of years ago was working on a ranch right outside Lander, you know, mm-hmm. learning to learning to do that. But what you're talking about is our, um, you know, all of these things now being part of what Andrew Lyle called the money economy. It is if you start selling your crops, you know, if you start thinking of what you're doing as a farmer or as a rancher in terms of a larger economy in which, you know, the prices are set elsewhere, um, you've already kind of lost the impetus, you know, that, that he finds so attractive about the self-sustaining farm, where you you grow what you need. You don't you're not growing it to sell to somebody else. I don't know how possible that is now. You know, I just don't know. This is Wendell Berry's constant theme: yeah. watching huge farms come in, grow one thing, use every available square foot of space. You know, not thinking about the future of it or the care of it. You know, that it's. Again, it seems part of the project of modernity, conquest of nature, you know, the wrenching of every last thing from from uh, nature for our own benefit, but without much foresight. So to go back to that um, Alan Tate quote, that someone's both inside and outside the old tradition, you're a modern and divided mind. But to apply that to another tradition that, that, that Tate, especially in his later life, was far more attached to as a living tradition, and that's Catholicism, the Catholic tradition. Is the modern, meaning the, the Catholic mind today, necessarily a divided mind? And was it for Tate? 
I don't think in the same way that it was, say, with respect to the Confederacy. Right. Let me just say a little about that. Uh, for the for the divided mind of the modern Southerner was two things with respect to the Confederacy. One was, you know, pretty implicit rejection of slavery. I mean, that's all. It was all pretty obviously unjust, right? But me, you know, but you know, there's a whole tradition of Southern defense of the Confederacy that tries to, you know, get slavery out of the picture and make it about states' rights and so on. That aside, the other dimension for Tate was that he couldn't imagine in his poem, Ode to the Confederate Dead, what it would be like to um, sort of be hurried beyond decision, you know, to be willing to give your life in the way that Confederates did, say, charging at, uh, at, at Gettysburg and Pickett's Charge or, you know, same thing with the Union troops. That kind of total resolution. Uh, was sort of beyond him, you know, uh, that that kind of given being given over to action. When you think about Catholicism, whether whether your mind is divided, I think the division there has to come from your your deep awareness of of being a modern. All of us are moderns, you know, and uh, Tate certainly recognized that in himself for all his talk about tradition. So with Catholicism, it's as though you're, you're trying to recover a tradition that wasn't the one that you were born into. You know, so like Eliot saying you have to, uh, if you want to have the tradition, you have to earn it. You know, you have to go back and read everything and you have to take it on. It's not something that's handed to you simply by being here. So I guess the, I'm not articulating this very well, but I think for Tate, the division would be the sense of what it must have been for Dante, what Maritain calls Dante's luck, you know, having been born when he was and having the, you know, this sort of coherent world that you've studied so much, you know, as a medievalist provided, in a sense, you know, for the mind. Whereas for the modern, uh, there's so many built-in doubts, simply in the way that you, you think about things. Yeah, so... Uh... A friend of mine describes that eloquently as under conditions of modern pluralism, you're constantly, even if even if you do inhabit a, a tradition, you're constantly looking over your shoulder, right. uh, because because there's there are all these other all these other options. So uh, Caroline Gordon, Alan Tate's wife, considered Jacques Maritain's art and scholasticism the most profound and complete aesthetic of the novel. And the line she kept coming back to, and which Flannery O'Connor also cites in her letters, is this, the line from Art and Scholasticism. Wherever art, Egyptian, Greek, or Chinese, has known a certain degree of grandeur and purity, it is already Christian. Christian in hope, because every spiritual radiance is a promise and a symbol of the divine harmonies of the gospel. So Gordon took this to mean that an Egyptian work of art can reveal just as much beauty as a Christian work of art. The Egyptian artist is Christian in hope because he has attained to Christianity aesthetically and must only wait for the rest to follow. So in Gordon's view, history is full of great pagan artists who were just as Christian as artists as St. Francis was as a man. And because the highest achievements of literary art have been reached by the modernists Henry James and James Joyce, 
they are more artistically Christian than Francois Mauriac and Graham Greene. Uh, she calls them more Catholic. Is Henry James a more Christian writer than Mauriac or Graham Greene? I have to confess, I'm not very fond of Henry James. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so I'll, I'll defer on Henry. I mean, I'll just demur on Henry James. Um, or or Joyce or Flaubert. I, I know I know what she means. You know, and I, and I think what what she means is that you know a really beautifully achieved novel is true to its art. And this is this is what I think Maritain emphasizes so much. It's not, in other words, a novel could be correct in doctrine, but uh, lousy as a novel. And its achievement of a certain kind of beauty is higher than than its achievement of certain doctrinal points. I guess you know, putting, I'm, I'm putting this clumsily. I think that um, Madame Bovary, for example, has such just, I mean, there's, there's something exquisite about that novel, you know, despite the uh, darkness of the ending. Carolyn Gordon took that novel as a tragedy. She argued vehemently with Louise Cowan, you know, my teacher at Dallas, about this, because Louise saw it as an infernal comedy. And I think Louise is right. I think the tone of it is, has a slight edge of, you know, irony and mockery all the way through, even to the last moment when that, you know, black bile or whatever comes out of Emma's mouth as though it were ink, you know, the ink we're running out of her. Um, it's, it's a very dark comic novel to my, to my view. But in, in any case, I think Caroline was more interested in the, the art of the novel than of, you know, the professed Catholicism. O'Connor... Flannery O'Connor underlined this passage in Art and Scholasticism in her own copy. Uh, Do not make the absurd attempt to dissociate in yourself the artist and the Christian. They are one, if you are truly Christian, and if your art is not isolated from your soul by some system of aesthetics. But apply only the artist to the work, precisely because the artist and the Christian are one. The work will derive wholly from each of them. It seems to me like there's a there's a kind of doctrine of union with Christ at at the heart of this. How how do you read Flannery O'Connor's claims to not be a Catholic writer, but to be a writer who who's Catholic in these terms? I think the more a writer tries to be Catholic, you know, be consciously Catholic, the less successful the writing is going to be. I think for O'Connor, the the union the, the sort of incarnational dimension of her art is that she writes out of who she is and out of what you know what she's given to see, and that's one thing, as she says. I get very impatient, as I'm sure you do, with you know Catholic movies, or Catholic novels, you know, as though this, as though there were some way to distinguish the art from from the. Uh, you know, the whole nature of the artist who conceives of it. I don't know. I mean, this, this, is such a, this is such a tough question. Obviously, there's Catholic art, you know, but is it Catholic art because you set out to embody Catholic ideas or because, you know, you're, you're Catholic because your whole soul is, you know, informed? So, yeah. What did you learn from Marion Montgomery? Oh, my gosh. How could I start? 
<laughs> First thing I learned was Flannery O'Connor. Reading those stories with Marion Montgomery in my freshman year was a revelation. I had no idea he could read literature that way. You know, I just how was he reading it? Well, he he would he would just you know make you see the the patterns in the story. He'd make you see the you know what what certain things meant. You know, so the events in the story, which seemed simply strange, began to become transparently meaningful. You know, with spiritual and uh, symbolic ideas. Uh, you know, I'm talking, my uh, approach to literature when I was a freshman in college was far from sophisticated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so just just kind of seeing the, the patterns, you know, that was, was illuminating, to say the least. And he was also very generous personally. I didn't know who he was, so I took him some of my early poems, and he, he read them without scorn. And... Um, you know, helped me see what I could do better. So he was he was a wonderfully generous man. What would be the best way for someone who wants to understand Marion Montgomery? What would be the, the best place for them to start? Well, I always think that if someone is an artist, the best place to start is by reading what they've written. He has several novels, uh, Daryl, Wandering of Desire, uh, Fugitive. I guess I think for someone whose soul is essentially artistic, that's where you're going to really see what's, what's on his mind. And then the voluminous <laughs> critical work that he did, I suspect is, is an attempt to say in other ways what he's doing in his, in his novels, in his poems. Uh, Marion's work was to try to combine what he saw in Flannery O'Connor and himself, you know, which is uh, Thomism and you know, deeply rooted sense of Christianity. So. He has this really uh, profound trilogy of Thomistic literary theory. Some of the best titles right out there. Yeah, what, what, are, what are they? <laughs> um, why Flannery O'Connor stayed home. Right. Why Poe drank liquor. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And what's the other one? Shoot, I can't remember the yeah, I don't use that. Uh, how did he, how did Marion Montgomery come to Thomism? I, I take it through Flannery O'Connor and pretty much on his own. You know, he only had an MA. Really? <laughs> yeah. And like, uh, he was like Clanth Brooks in that respect, you know, another great figure in 20th century criticism. They didn't, they didn't really follow the traditional scholarly path. And, and so this was always being brought up against Mary Montgomery at, at the University of Georgia. Well, he only has an MA. Yeah, but he's written, <laughs> you know, 30 books. I think his Thomism came out of his um, love of the tradition, his desire to understand these things better. Wyoming Catholic College has an integrated curriculum, like uh, St. John's College or Thomas Aquinas College. That is, every student studies the same set of texts and disciplines in the same sequence. But in addition to the liberal arts we expect to find in a great books curriculum, Wyoming Catholic adds horsemanship and wilderness backpacking. So what's different about Wyoming Catholic's understanding of an integrated curriculum that places these pursuits on par with Euclid and Dante? We are embodied creatures, I mean, to put it simply. I think of this as an education that takes the incarnation seriously, you know, on every level. We 
understand the physical world through, through our senses and our body. One of the theorists of our education, John Senior, you know, talks about this a, a great deal, you know, how you come to know through the basically poetic faculties of, of taking things in. To ride a horse is to come to understand another creature in a way that, that you don't simply by reading about it. To feel that horse under you and know that the horse is reading you at the same time that you're trying to ride the horse. It's an experience our students talk about with great respect. And it's when you go into the classroom and, you know, you're reading the Phaedrus or something about, you know, the horses you're trying to control or reading the Iliad, you know, about um, the immortal horses of Achilles that Dolan thinks he can get, you know, if, if he is successful in spying on the Achaeans. Uh, these are, are things that are alive to our students in, way that, in ways that I don't think they can be anywhere else. You're a rock climber. I mean, you know what, what the wilderness uh, demands of you, what, you know, what that kind of activity demands of you in terms of, of attention, you know, physical presence to the exact moment of courage, you know, when you have to overcome your own fears to do it. Those things are certainly part of the way that Aristotle understands the formation of the moral virtues. You don't get the moral virtues by reading about them and grasping them um, intellectually, you know. Uh, you get them by doing the things that are required to, to form the deeper habits that really underlie, you know, underlie character. So I think that uh, traditionally, Many of the things that we have to put into our curriculum were simply part of the way life was lived, um, especially, you know, constant daily contact with the natures of things in the world. So now, in effect, we're having to supply the opportunity to do the kinds of things that, that simply used to be part of the texture of life. And yeah, you would think in the ancient world, for example, that the liberal arts would be built on, you know, deep experience already of horses, of, you know, farming, of, you know, slaughter of animals, of, you know, all these things. Now you, you have to try to fill that in. <laughs> yeah. Remedial, remedial reality. <laughs> uh, is Wyoming Catholic College an instance of the Benedict option? A question that comes up here, it comes up elsewhere. I don't see us as, let me give you two interpretations of the Benedict option. One is that you're talking about sealing yourself off from the rest of the world, you know, protecting your own community, making sure that nothing from out there is able to get in here, you know, and, and mess up what we're doing. The other is that you take a step back from the dominant culture so that you can have an intentional community that's, you know, ultimately intended to face outward and help transform the dominant culture. I think of what we're doing as the latter of those. Um, we have to have enough time and presence with these students to, to give them something that profoundly differs from what most people in the culture have. But the intention is not to 
for them to, you know, protect themselves from then on, but to go out and try to help change things wherever they can, you know, wherever they can see the opportunities to bring greater insight to bear. Green Mountain College in Vermont is one of a dozen or so small colleges to close in recent years and to go up for sale. And the economist Tyler Cowen recently speculated on the possibility of buying the campus, just $20 million, and starting a new college that would eliminate many of the problems with higher education. He concludes that the experiment would fail because higher ed is sufficiently homogenous, incestuous, <laughs> that all of the personnel and all of the financial structures would just reproduce, uh, end up reproducing themselves and the problems of the mainstream university. But you're at the helm of a very new college. Is it 15 years this year? Uh, we first classes were in 2007. So we're not even 15 not years even 15. Yet. Yeah. So how is Wyoming Catholic going to, uh, to buck the, the uh, reproduction of the same? Yeah. Well, in the first place, I don't think Tyler Cowan is aware of places like ours. Yeah. You know, there are a number of you know smaller colleges across the country that are that differ pretty profoundly from that uh, standard academic model that you see these days the faculty here tend to be more steeped in Aquinas than in Michel Foucault for example and that's true of uh, you know the colleges where they came from and the graduate programs where they had the opportunity to study in any case, I think, uh, I think he's overstating it. He argues that the only people you'd get would be malcontents or people who were dishonored in their professions elsewhere. There are lots of good uh, young faculty who really, really want the opportunity to teach real things and to get away from the you know, pervasive politicization of everything, you know, the ideologies of... Uh, race and gender and so on and identity politics so I, I just I think the case I think he's overstated the case there's also a good bit of financial support available you know from people who care about these care about uh, real education instead of uh, using public money to uh, turn it to political indoctrination what are the main pragmatic challenges of starting a new college I wasn't here when this one was founded, but you can imagine. Um, how, do, how do you talk? I think they had 38 students. How do you talk 38 students into coming to a college that doesn't exist yet yeah. um, in a place where there's no dorm, there's no classroom? Yeah. So they had to uh, a lot of you know, pragmatic challenges there. First of all, money going around raising the money. What about in, in, in the current phase? It's accredited, yeah, yeah. it has a campus. What are, what are the challenges? Uh, the challenges, you know, the main challenge for us has been what to do about student loans. Because the students who come here, use, most of them need financial aid. So we don't take federal funding um, because of the strings attached to that. So what we had been doing until this last year is basically extending the loan to the student ourselves, which means that the student goes through the four years and then starts paying for it, you know, which puts us in a you know, financial hole year after year. Yeah. 
this past year, we were able to work out a deal with uh, Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. This is a credit union in South Bend, not associated with the university, that gives loans to the students on our terms, meaning that anybody who asks for one, regardless of their credit rating, you know, we extend the loan to them. But now we can get the, the money up front from, from the credit union, and then the student you know, pays back the credit union as, as they go. So this has meant a huge kind of relief from the financial hole that we had put ourselves in trying to get any student you know who wanted to come here the education so that's been that's been huge that's been a real benefit also you know, we have wonderfully generous donors who care about catholic education who care about this you know what we're trying to do you know in shaping these students so that's i just you know feel blessed that we are um, right now god willing you know this will continue, knock on wood, <laughs> we're in the better, best financial shape we've ever been in. I think the fact that we're able to reopen this fall has, has been a real, it's been a really attractive thing to a lot of the students coming in. So it's partly Wyoming, you know, it's partly the, the spirit of the college. We can't exist as a virtual college. That's just, you know, we'll just, that, that's just not who we are can't have virtual horseback riding. Yeah. So in the middle of these interviews, we like to play a flash round of the game, Would You Rather? (laughs) In which you're asked to choose between two undesirables and or or to choose between two very attractive uh, options that you would never in real life want to have to choose between. Wow. Are you game? I, I guess. If, if you promise you'll delete this whole section if need be. <laughs> Feel free to pass on any of them and answer as briefly or as, as verbosely as you would like. Would you rather attend a small-town high school championship football game where you know all the players and their families or the Super Bowl? Small-town game. Would you rather have Dante or Augustine? Dante. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Because he's, he's um, have him or, or clarify. What do you mean? However you want to take it. <laughs> um, I, I, I like poets more than theologians. <laughs> uh, Alistair McIntyre or Charles Taylor? Alistair McIntyre. Well, I know the answer to this one. How about uh, uh, James Joyce or Francois Mauriac? Joyce. <laughs> um, interesting. Why? I don't particularly like Moriac. I've, I've read a number of his novels. I just, it doesn't click with me. The New South or the New West? I'm not sure what the New West is, I suppose. The New South is a, is a very complex term also, so I'm not sure how to answer okay. that. So moving on then, in the opening scene of Apocalypse Now, uh, formation of U.S. helicopters flies a napalm bombing sortie over... Vietnam with Wagner's Ride of the Valkyries blasting over loudspeakers. And the film critic Anthony Lane has described this scene as a rare instance of a conservative high. What did he mean by this, and what would an actual conservative high look like? That is a very complicated question. Um, a conservative high? Well, you know, can I tell a little story? There was a time when I was a freshman in college that a uh, number of us on our floor in Russell Hall at the University of Georgia were making too much noise. 
playing, like, playing on music too loud or something. And a guy who was in ROTC or something started playing the Ride of the Valkyries at an extremely high volume uh, to override, you know, everything that we were doing. And I can't think of the scene in Apocalypse Now without thinking of that that moment. So conservative high. Yeah, well, if, I mean, the... I can't. Well, so it's, it's, it seems to me that Lane is using a, a common understanding of conservatism as, as, as being synonymous with fascism and Wagner being the, the, sort of, the architect of uh, a kind yeah, of template for yeah. friend of Nietzsche, proto Hitlerian, etc. Right. And then the Vietnam War is, is another avatar of this, of this conservatism. But that clearly misconstrues what the most in the conservative tradition would would think of themselves as uh, as as being and so if if uh, if a real conservative were to have a real conservative high what what kinds of artistic musical moments might accompany that do you think Jeez. you know i'm still so so stunned by the kind of almost uh, Bacchanalian or Bacchic dimension of, of of the Wagnerian moment. That I mean, I guess you know the the conservative moment would might might have uh, Bach in the background and some <laughs> <laughs> some good, you know cognac and good conversation. I, I don't I don't uh-huh. know. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Why is the dystopian novel the premier young adult genre? I think there's a profound feeling right now that things are are collapsing. There's, you know, it's not just the young adults. As you think of the films, you think of the uh, range of popular imagination. It almost seems to long for some kind of apocalyptic collapse. So many imaginations of uh, disaster and then what comes after disaster. I haven't read a lot of the young adult novels. I'm just kind of I'm generalizing from what seems to me a, a kind of cultural sense now, as though there were no real hope left for the utopian schemes of the 19th and 20th centuries. Mm-hmm. No, that's not going. It's not how it's going to be. It's it's going to be something very different from that. So, okay. So why the popularity of socialism among young people? You know, I don't get it. I don't see how that all works together. Yeah. So Robert Hugh Benson published one of what's widely regarded as one of the first dystopian novels in 1907, Lord of the World. And it's about the coming of Antichrist and his political and social attractions. And it came to prominence recently when Pope Francis said that was his favorite novel. But I think less well-known is the sequel, in a way, to that novel, the next novel that Benson wrote, The Dawn of All, which is a utopian novel. And it's of a piece with these sort of of turn-of-the-century, end-of-history projects that see the convergence of Christianity, science, art, and um, and politics as, as having basically been achieved natural reason and christianity have uh, have converged and the rest of history is just going to be a a playing out of this convergence across all aspects of human society 
resulting in a kind of liberal integralism. And so one reading of why we haven't seen more novels like this is the two world wars. I mean, they, they demolished that, that end of history moment. But when you think about Thomas More's Utopia, that emerges out of, out of a time of relative crisis. You know, one of, one of its objects is a critique of an unjust economic, modern, actually modernizing economic system with the enclosure movement. Right. So why don't we see more utopias? Why don't we see more Christian utopias? I guess I think that um, the sense that we have of, of an ineradicable evil in our social natures is is uh, part of what makes that hard to hard to do. Mm-hmm. It's hard, it's hard for us these days to imagine heaven, even you know, much less a social utopia. I think if we could, you know, think about what a plausible heaven would be, that would be a real achievement for you know for a Catholic writer or anyone. Uh, utopias. You know, I just think there's a deep sense of uh, such social dysfunction right now that the idea of getting everything harmonized <laughs> is just kind of out of reach. You know, it, it's it's really interesting to me to think of what underlies the utopian impulse of the imagination anyway. Really? I mean, it always strikes me as sort of like a, the, you know, the thought experiment in the Republic. Okay, so suppose we did it this way. Would that work? You know, get everything worked out like this. And that's how Moore's Utopia strikes me. Yeah. As a kind of, as a, almost as a variety of satire. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, given the, the nature of human beings, you're never going to get anything to work in the way that you imagine it will all harmonize. I didn't know Benson had written that second novel. I read Lord of the World. It's really cool. Yeah. I'll have, <laughs> I'll have to read this. Uh so here's another would you rather. Okay. Would you rather a um, heaven as uh, iterative stasis, as Paul Griffiths has recently described the uh, the Thomistic and Western vision of heaven? Iterative stasis. Or or as uh, um, epectasy uh, in uh, further up and further in in the C- in the C- C.S. Lewis's imagination. I guess I conceive of it as as a, a now. You know, but not as an iterative stasis. So maybe that's casting the, down their golden crowns around the glassy <laughs> sea over yeah. and over again. Yeah, yeah. I think more C.S. Lewis. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, me too. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. What is the best time to write a novel? Time of life, time of year, time of day? Well, time of day for me is very early morning. Time of year, probably winter, because there's a lot more early morning in winter. <laughs> <laughs> Um, time of life, I, I think that depends on the writer. For me, it's it's become possible since I'm, uh, my kids are out of the house, which also allows for more early writing. Yeah. How do you learn to write a novel without going to an MFA program, without having that, that whole kind of professionalization that um, most novelists go yeah, through these days? I don't know. Um, reading a lot, you know, seeing what works. It's very... Very experimental for me. How do you see what works? Do you have readers that you try things out on? Yeah, um, my wife and others. But when I'm writing something, I like to finish it before I show it to anybody. You know, so that it doesn't it doesn't enter 
by uh, you know whatever is going on creatively too soon. Mm-hmm. So I want to I want to have a kind of wholeness there that I can then work you know work to modify. But yeah, I think there are some advantages to writing things when you're older. There's a I mean it's a whole different dynamic of I think for young novelists. You know, it's, it's a whole different way of kind of thinking that what you're doing, how you're being in the world is is being shaped by the by this imagination of things. You you think the young Fitzgerald and you know Hemingway and, and those guys, how they they kind of form the imaginations of a generation. Um, I certainly don't think that way, you know. Not like that, you know, not writing in my sixties. But I do think of things with a I think more experience over a longer time, I guess. How would you compare uh, Robert Giroux and Joshua Wren, just considered as avatars for Catholic literary publishing. You know, I don't. I never read that much about Giroux, but I really admire what Joshua Wren's been doing. He he had the gumption to do what needed to be done. You know, a generation or two ago, which is to really try to start giving a voice to you know Catholic writers who are serious and had you know some literary accomplishment uh, you know so so it's not just a safe for you to read kind of press but you know this is going to push you a little bit this is going to challenge you i really appreciated his publishing my novel bearings of distances because it certainly pushes some things you know mm-hmm. and you know it's pretty pretty tough to read in some ways i hope it's also funny it's also very easy to read. <laughs> well, good. It's a, it's a page turner. So, Paul Ely, really talking about the period of Robert Giroux as kind of the orchestra, uh, the uh, conductor of of the Catholic literary imagination, mm-hmm. mid-century New York publishing. Yeah. Uh, but he described the Catholic uh, Ely described the Catholic literary Renaissance of that time is marked by an intense loneliness of the Catholic writer. And that seems not to be the case so much today. Uh, the journal Dappled Things, the Joshua Wren's um, imprint Wise Blood, uh, are just the most prominent examples of a thriving Catholic literary community, which also seems to coalesce online. But at the same time, these communities exist more at the periphery of mainstream literary publishing, whereas Forrest Rawson was and still is right there in the center of it all. So what do you think are the benefits and trade-offs of this new community? I think the benefits are pretty clear, and that is it gives you know young writers who are different from the mainstream a voice, you know, where they can publish their work and know that they have an audience and that will understand them. Uh, I think the problems are more or less what Dana Joy pointed out about poets, uh, back in the early 90s, and that is that, you know, they write for each other. They are not reaching out, you know, into the general public, the place of, of, of the poet, Joey was arguing, you know, is sort of um, guaranteed by fellowships and creative writing positions and readings, but, you know, in, in the general imagination, poetry is vanished. You know, uh, that, that's changed somewhat. But I, I just I worry that that will, will be the case with, uh, you know, so there'll be a thriving subculture. 
but without the breakthrough, you know, that, that would really make a difference into the larger culture. I'm not sure how that happens, you know. I think if you're not doing what, what Joshua and Dapple things are doing, um, you don't have a shot at all, you know. So, yeah, the better they get, the better, you know, better the chance will be, I think. How would you compare the, the current Catholic literary moment to, say, 1956? There were, there were some giants in 1956. You know, who had, had sort of made it through a difficult process, you know, to be able to speak, you know, as Catholics, you know, as converts. I mean, there were precedents, obviously. Uh, the conversion of Eliot to Anglo-Catholicism in 1927 opened opened a lot for his generation, the one after him. I, I just sense that there was something in that post-World War II moment, you know, when the evil of the world had been so evident that made that particularly striking for for that generation in terms of what they were trying to accomplish as Catholics. I mean, Tate and, and others would complain about the Catholic establishment even then, you know. They just want me to write this, you know. So, I don't know, but Percy and, and uh, what, what Tate was doing in his essays in particular... Um, Geraldine Gordon's work, Blind O'Connor. I don't see anybody like that right now. Maybe I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. Do you know Laurus by yeah. Eugene yeah, Podolaskin? I, I love that. I love that book. Yeah. How, how, would you, how would you place Laurus in the American literary tradition? Is he I mean, American? No, not at all. He's, he's very, he's very Russian. And, and I was going to say, that would, it's a Russian that's a revelation. Right? Yeah. Um, I don't think anything like that's been written for us recently. I haven't, you know, I, I, I've been a little too busy here lately. I haven't read as much as I would have. Do you have anything you think stands at that level? I think, uh, I think your son's play is very close to that. Well, in, in different different dimensions, but it's. I remember Gregory Wolf maybe 15 years ago said that he was waiting for someone to write. The American Christian novel of ideas. And I think that play has, mm. has achieved that. But I think I think Laurus just blows everything else away. Yeah. As there's as nothing like it ever read it in recent years. No. Yeah. Well, Glenn Arbery, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Well, it's been a pleasure for me. Thank you for doing this. Thanks for listening. If you appreciated this episode, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We love to hear from listeners. Chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also learn more about our programming at beatriceinstitute.org. That's beatriceinstitute, all one word, dot org. And if you are a university student or faculty member in Pittsburgh and would like to be involved locally, check out our fellows program and get in touch. This episode was mixed and mastered by Yellow Music and Sound. Until next time, I'm Ryan McDermott. Go with God. Go with God.